All right, all right, all right. Uh, let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum. Stay on target. Maximum. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Top of the morning to you, laddies. This is the actual Anarchy Podcast St. Patrick's Day special. I've got my friend Robert here, and we are going to talk about the movie The Boondock Saints from an anarcho-capitalist perspective, and we have a special guest who is a quarter Irish, but we will introduce him in just a moment. How are you doing, Robert? I'm powered by beer in the spirit of the movie and the spirit of the day that this is going to be released on, so enjoy, homies. Yeah, I too have my Guinness there, laddie. I had a uh, pastrami on rye for lunch. We got some soda bread in the oven. We're good to go. And speaking of good to go, we've got our friend Michael Tabone of the evolution of economics.com. He is a bona fide economist of the Austrian variety, so we have some respect for this man. He also contributes to actualanarchy.com, which is our website. So anyone listening, please do check out actualanarchy.com. We've got over 300 articles on there. We just started doing a slight change to it because we were doing an overload. We were we're throwing out five, ten articles a day. We're going to scale that back, maybe do one or two, feature some things, uh, make it a little bit less of a in-your-face news site and more of a philosophical, long-standing argument type site. But before we get on to that, why don't we introduce our guest, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm great, guys. How are you? We are excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is a St. Patrick's Day special, and so when uh, I threw out the invite, you were the first one to respond. You were super excited about it, and you threw in the tidbit that you are a quarter Irish. So we're we're all set then. Yeah, my last name is Tabone, but it's O Tabone today, and I'm sitting here with my Guinness as well. So we're all Guinness up here on all three of our of our sides, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll have a good top of the morning show, and you know, have a little fun, little do do do. Make oh, that's stuff. perfect. That's perfect. And uh, so we're going to do The Boondock Saints, which is a movie that came out, what, just before the uh, Y2K events, right? And it starts on, oddly enough, St. Patrick's Day, so it's perfect for us. But uh, I'll just do a real quick overview. Um, anyone who hasn't seen this movie, stop the show right now. Go watch the movie. It's really good. And then come back and, and you'll get all the ins and outs, especially from an economics angle and uh, what we would view it as in Adankapistan. But uh, The Boondock Saints, it stars uh, Norman Reedus, who is from The Walking Dead. And so that really threw me because I was watching him all the way through going with this Irish accent. And I kept waiting for Daryl to come out with a crossbow. Uh, and he looks super young in this, too, which is kind of weird. But uh, they play two brothers, Connor and Murphy McManus, who become vigilantes after doing a self-defense killing of some Russian mafia 
who are moving in on one of their uh, watering holes, their, their little bar, uh, the bartender is needing to sell out to these guys and the Russian mafia comes in and says, hey, you got to get out tonight. You're done tonight. Not, not the end of the month right now. And they end up getting into a fist fight, brawl with these guys, end up killing them. And uh, the FBI investigates, the Boston PD investigates, realize it's self-defense and let the guy off. But they view it as like an epiphany or like as a kind of an on-high anointment to verify or validify what they were doing. And so then they go out and start wreaking vigilante justice throughout the city, killing more mobsters and drug dealers and pimps and all of these type folks. Uh, and that's kind of the whole premise of the movie. Michael, you saw this recently. Do you want to just round out any of this and we'll just start taking it scene by scene? Sure. Um, these guys are basically the spirit of vengeance that, or the innate, the innate call for fairness that you might have or anybody might have in their natural life. So when something happens unfairly on a playground, you know, you have a candy bar, someone steals your candy bar, we just kind of all kind of know, even without any social norm training, that that's wrong, that there's some kind of, uh, you know, negative rights, there's some kind of natural law that says, you just can't go around stealing other people's property and you can't just go around interfering with other people. And that's kind of where we come into this idea that if we look at, if we look at the film Boondock Saints from the ANCAPistan concept. So ANCAP, anarcho-capitalism, the idea that there is only private means, not public means. So there is no public police force. There is no public firefighters, there is no public anything, there is no state in which to give services to the public, everything is private, how would someone retaliate or get some kind of satisfaction for those kind of injustices? So right in the beginning, these guys are in a bar that the Russian mob comes in and says, we want you guys out. So they come in, they tell the owner of the bar, hey, you got to get out of here. These guys instinctively decide, hey, this is wrong, the St. Patrick's Day. They do a shot with these guys. They don't really take the shot, the Russians, and they decide that they're going to fight back. They take alcohol, they, they put it on their butt, they put alcohol on their head, they light it on fire, and they kick the guys out. So they don't kill them. They don't react, overly react. They just react in proportion to their, to their what, was, you know, what was happening to them, and they kick them out. And then the Russians go and find out where these guys live, attack them in their own home, and that's when they retaliate with, um, you know, force. They, 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 they end up killing these two guys famously by dropping the toilet on the guy's head, right? Um, in which, you know, William Dufoe's character finally shows up and he makes fun of Detective Greenlee, who's uh, played by Bob Marley, and, uh, you know, makes fun of him for having some stupid theory about a huge guy dropping, sitting on him. And uh, that's when, you know, William Dufoe's character does the, you know, um, does the awesome job of figuring out what's going on. So we also have this other element where we have the state provided fund, the state provided service being completely inept. These guys cannot do their job. But what ends up do what ends up do, ends up actually happening is people that are not the private service that is not funded by the state. In other words, these two brothers, Connor McManus and, and Murphy McManus, these guys end up being 
this call to vengeance or justice that's outside of the law, these private citizens figure it out that they're going to be the ones that go around, you know, dispensing justice in the name of the spirit, and they go to the church and they get all the blessings, and that's how we go. We go from there. That's the beginning of the whole idea. Okay, um, I got one question just from what you said. Um, now it seems to be okay. Full disclosure, I haven't seen this movie in like 15 years, so I probably saw it on like home video from a blockbuster video, you know, a couple of years after it came out. Oh, yeah, on VHS. Based on what you, uh, maybe, maybe DVD. I'm not, you know, uh, but it could have been. Um, so they kind of see it as like this kind of holy, divine um, kind of inspiration to do this. Is there ever a time? Or is it in the beginning of the time that they are going to get paid for their efforts, or do they anticipate taking their payment from the ill-gotten gains of these gangsters? So it's not until they they get involved that they they start they start their exploits of going around and being this 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 uh, instrument of justice after they leave the police precinct in which the police basically William Dufault uh, says, uh, you know, let these guys go. They were just acting in self-defense. These guys are okay. They let these guys go and these guys go into the world and they decide, you know what, we're going to take out one or two more of these people. They end up uh, taking the the firearms and the, and, the, and, the, and the watches and the drugs that they had from the guys, the Russians who they had killed and they bring it to this underground arms dealer, another guy working outside of the state, and they decide to buy a whole bunch of things, and famously they bought the rope uh, and the guns and everything else, which they use in a second movement where they go after the big-time Russian mob guys. They have these guys in the information. They go after the big guys, uh, the big Russian mob guys, the, the leader and the underbosses, and they end up uh, falling through the ceiling, and the rope catches them just perfectly, and uh, somehow these guys are able to do things that no sniper team in the entire world could be trained to do. They're perfect headshots and everything else, and they end up killing everybody, and they find a huge briefcase full of cash. When they find the briefcase full of cash, they go back to their apartment. Um, they grab their buddy, uh, Rocco, who actually works again for another syndicate, the mob syndicate, the Italian syndicate. Again, not a state-funded thing, a private uh, mob type thing. And uh, they're talking, and the guy goes, you can make a lot of money. And they go, you know what? We could do that. We can make a lot of money if we went into business together. So they're very entrepreneurial, again, outside of the state bounds. But they're not necessarily acting on the behalf of any specific individual that's been harmed by these groups, right? They're just saying these are bad guys or are they they're not they're 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 acting on their own behalf right they're not acting on necessarily any harmed clients behalf yeah they yeah they never in the movie they never go into actual in the movie in the first part of the movie they never actually go into business for other people when they end the movie however we're not really sure whether they actually ever did receive money for their services or not right because at the end of the movie they end up going into a courtroom and uh and killing the head of the mob, right? So there had to be some. We don't, you know, we don't really know that. That's part of the. That's part of the world that we're left to speculate. But we are left to be, in, until part two came out. <laughs> I, I I deny the fact that part two even exists. 
I'm uh yeah, I'm not I'm not willing to say that it exists. It is better that way. So yeah, we'll just we'll just pretend it doesn't exist and yes, it's sort of left open ended at the end, though they do sort of form this alliance with um the the main like machine type killer at the end and and What's go that? into business working together with him. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's clear, right? What's the machine killer? El Duce, Billy, by played by Billy Billy Connolly, who, by the way, Billy Connolly is awesome. Uh, great comedian, been around forever. Awesome guy. Uh, if we're talking about the Irish and the awesomeness, El Duce is, and again, another another perfect example of how corrupt the state is used in the in the movie. He is kept in a very maximum security prison, and it is by completely corrupt means that the mob lets him out of that maximum security facility. They need him. They make a phone call with some ma- some money. Boom. This guy is left out of a maximum security prison that he's been locked up in for 30 years, all because the corrupt mob was able to influence that public institution. So, again, it's another example of a public institution being used for corrupt purposes. Right, and it's, it's a dr- at the drop of a hat, like you were saying, and, and – Prior to that, I mean, they're treating this guy like Hannibal Lecter. Like, they put uh, special security cages around him when he's in the parole meeting. Uh, you know, they yep. wheel him out. He's all strapped down. I mean, he's a dangerous dude. And, yeah, it just took one phone call, basically, and they got him out. Yep, absolutely. And why can, and why can the, is the government so easily corruptible? Because they don't have any worries about any kind of competition. They don't have to actually provide a good service. So it's not like if you let out some horrific killer, they're all of a sudden out of a job. They're they're pretty much guaranteed a position, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot. There's a lot of these kind of things that pop up in the movie that are really interesting. You know, um, like you were just saying. I mean, I, I think that the police do the same thing. They're inept because basically, who are you going to go to? Right. Right. Who else, you know, you have Detective Greenlee coming up with these stupid theories left and right. But who else are you going to who know who else who are you going to call Ghostbusters? There's no one else to call here. You know, you're just dealing with the police and they're they're completely inept in the, in, in the move in the way the movie is de- depicted, I should say. Mm-hmm. And it's not in Capitan. So the Boondock Saints don't have a like a telephone listing. No, <laughs> no, they don't. And no, no one's going to call them just yet. Uh, but thank you for foreshadowing that we will be doing a Ghostbusters episode in the near future, Michael. Oh, really? Wow, that'd be cool. I'll definitely listen to that one. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, it's coming up next couple of weeks. That that one, it's going to be a compare and contrast from the original to the uh, new Feminazi version. Oh, that's got to be great. That's cool. That's a good one. So yeah, let's get back to, uh, there's this corrupt government. State locks the guy up. They let him out. The state doesn't offer any alternatives, so it's the absence of alternatives that creates this monopoly and hence poor service. You're, you're paying for it whether you want to or not. Um, there was another note that you had made to me uh, about when we were talking about, let's you know discuss this film, and that was that the boys value lifestyle over money. Yes, they do. So right in the beginning of the movie, you realize that these guys are smarter than their circumstances would let on. So right at the beginning of the movie, these guys dress in uh, wife beaters with um, simple, uh, um, 
you know, navy coats on with jeans and they work in a meat packing factory and they're just kind of, you know, very simple. They seem like very simple people until you realize that when you're talking, they understand about culture. They understand about different languages. They, you learn later on that their mother insisted that they learn several different languages and cultures uh, outside of the regular school system. So again, they were homeschooled outside of the public school system to be more uh, educated and intelligent than what the public school system allowed. And they decided that they weren't necessarily going to utilize all of that type of, you know, that ability that they had because they, they must have clearly liked the lifestyle that they lived over what they could have possibly possessed. So they ordinarily had orderly, so they had a, a, you know, a list of one to ten or whatever it is, and they like to pick their lifestyle over utilizing their intelligence or their ability. And that's why they live in that squalor type of place where they live with beds that are just simply, you know, there's no box springs or anything. They just live on the floor. Uh, their shower's right there next to them. They live right there next to their toilet. They must have liked that lifestyle much more than utilizing what the innate abilities and the things that they learned from their parents, uh, mostly from their mother, right? Their dad was locked up in a prison cell. Uh, spoiler alert. And uh, they... Um, they, so they had a they had a preference one way or the other. Normally in 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 cinema, you know, someone's someone's smart and they live a certain way, you know. And uh, in this particular case, these they are like Tyler Durden's. They wanted to live simply, minimalistically, and they wanted to have a job packing meat, which they clearly could have had a job being a million other things. This reminds yeah, I mean, me certainly. of Goodwill Hunting, where uh, Will Hunting was a super genius, but he like to do his construction jobs with his buddies because that's what he liked to do. Yeah, another Boston film we could have done, huh? <laughs> Next yeah, year, I brother. Many, I don't know if there's as many uh, as much violence in that movie, but yeah, we could probably do it. <laughs> well, he does. They do fight. They do fight in the. Uh, you know, he just stops the car and fights that guy in the middle of the. Uh, the basketball court, so you got that going on for you, and you got next year. You could always do it next year. You don't have to do it all, doll it all once, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there is that scene. There's a couple, yeah, a couple fight scenes, and then there's the the child abuse, and yeah, there's a couple issues in there. Yeah. yeah, it's Boston Beans. Can't go wrong. So you bring up some really good points because yeah, clearly these guys have a very wide and large skill set, and they are making a choice to you know, live the, the way that they were living. Um, I think during the um, investigation of the initial crime scene, they make note that the building um, where, where the water was dripping down is not, doesn't have a supervisor. Like, it's a squatter's building. It's, it's supposed to be uninhabited, but that's where the boys are living. So they're not even paying rent, right? They're living in this, like you said, this just open, run-down loft style building that has uh, their toilet right next to their bed. That's absolutely right. And that's what, if we learn anything from our Austrian, my Austrian background, right, is the fact that people like Murray Rothbard would have written in Man, Economy, and State about how uh, going on with this ordinal preference that it's all subjective, that you can't say from person to person that, hey, you know, if I lived in that same exact situation, if I was uh, multilingual and I had all these skill sets that these guys had, would I pick the same exact thing that they did? And I might not. I might pick something completely different. Um, from brother to brother, they might, they might have a different preference one way or the other, but they decided all, th you know, after, the, after it's all said and done that this is the way that they want to live. And um, 
it's it's definitely a different take on you know just the simple guy you know the the simple bum who wants to live by himself and uh, you know he they're making a choice as brothers so there's another there's another cool little um dynamic that exists there and it's just uh it's an interesting thing to think about about how subjectivity plays a big huge role into how these guys are going to live their life and that Hollywood decided to choose this particular uh, avenue to go down is really kind of cool. Yeah, I dig it. Now, I, I don't think that the uh, the writer of this movie is necessarily an Austrian economist of any stretch, but it is interesting that, that this is how he laid out uh, his story uh, to to be able to exhibit this kind of subjective uh, valuation that, that you're speaking of. So it is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, like I said before, and like I, like I brought up to Dan, I, I think there's a lot of uh, Ann Capistan moments that are in this movie that we you might not think about when you first watch it right off the bat. You know, uh, let's just take and I, and and I and, I'm, and I'd love to get everyone's perspective on this about vengeance itself. I mean, is vengeance really um, from our understanding of of anarchy and our understanding of the ability for someone to have retaliative um, is retaliation self-defense? Is retaliation, you know, in a in an automatic, violent way without some kind of societal norm, is that okay? You know, is it, what's the what's the line of vengeance? You know, if if uh, you know if I get cut off tomorrow, can I just get uh, can I by Dan cuts me off tomorrow in traffic? Can I just call the vengeance guys and say, hey, vengeance guys, guy cut me off? You know, you got to go to his house and you got to kill him and you got to say a prayer and shoot him in the eyes and stuff. You know what? what you know, where's the line? How does it work? What do you What do you guys think? That That sounds a little bit too premeditated, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's all those damn posts, Dan. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, what do you guys think? Uh, no, where's this, the line? Yeah, this is something that Robert and I talk about all the time, uh, because, and I'll summarize Robert's position, and he can summarize mine. But Robert generally says, if somebody transgresses upon another. Um, it's no longer self-defense after the fact. And so really you can't then initiate force against the, even if you know it was the perpetrator. And so the, the tool of choice is ostracism or making it known that they are a shady bad person who's you know, done X so that other people won't want to associate with them. So ostracism being the tool. Is that a pretty good summary of your stance on that kind of thing, Robert? Well, that's my personal stance on it. Of course, everything we're talking about is our own personal stances, and we're not going to force anybody else to accept our sense of justice or whatever. Um, I, for you, I've tried to get this out of you multiple times, and I think our, we both agree that you know the market is going to serve justice far better than any monopoly ever could, because there's an incentive to do so. So... Um, the market would arrive at some sort of best solution for most people, or there would be multiple solutions to choose from. Say one uh, provider, um, you know, does business in a certain way, and you prefer that way, so you'll tend to use that service more than another provider that would do justice in a different way. So the best one would win out. Um, I'm kind of interested in the exact mechanism by which justice is, well, justified. Um, I've heard you speak about Daniel before, 
that when someone aggresses against you, they are creating a contract. And that the contract isn't over until both parties are satisfied. And that's what allows you to exact you know, justice on that person. So in that sense, and if, I'm not, if that's not the case, correct me, but if that's the case, then what would you feel if there's this vigilante group who, let's say you were wronged by the mob, and some vigilante group comes along and murders these guys without your involvement at all. They just saw that this thing was done and a, a wrong was committed, and they went in on your behalf. Not, you know, they didn't consult you at all, but they just took it upon themselves to go right the wrong and end up killing the person. How would you feel about that? Would you think that would violate your contract? Or am I totally off base with the whole contract talk? You know, I, I, I hardly recall this whole contract thing to begin with. Um, I think I was saying that if somebody initiates violence against you or starts the fight, they don't get to pick how it ends. And so in that, in that way, they sort of entering into an implicit agreement with you, like, hey, we're going to fight about this, and, and they expect to overpower you, otherwise they wouldn't attack you, right? Um, and so it's not really up to them how it how it gets finished. In a current climate, like the current non-Ancapistan version, you can only respond uh, to the point where you stop the uh, the threat from happening. So that's the that's how far you can take the self-defense. Like in our last episode, we were talking about that pharmacy that got robbed, and the guy shot back at the perpetrators and stopped their ability to continue to cause harm. But then he went one step further and shot the guys on the ground, killing them. And that was the, you know, the bridge too far, where they were no longer able to aggress against him, but then he exacted his vengeance on the spot. And this is an interesting conversation to have, because in Ancapistan, you know, like Michael was saying, it's kind of, it, it might be sort of in play, like as fair game. Well, with that rationale, though, there wouldn't be a death penalty in Ancapistan, right? Because you would stop the attack, and you would have this person in custody or whatever. You'd have him not attacking you anymore. So you couldn't then aggress against him. Or could you not even imprison them? Because then that would be further aggression, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question as well. Um, and, and maybe, Michael, you have some input in this uh, right after I, I say this part is when you're in a, a situation of self-defense with lethal force, you're trying to stop them, and the best way to stop them is, you know, center mass. So you're shooting to, you know, shut them down, right? So you're not shooting to, you know, oh, I'm just going to wing him. Oh, I'm just going to hit him in the leg, and then maybe he'll stop. No, you're, you're going center mass to end the encounter as quickly as possible. So there is a high likelihood of them dying. So it's not to say that, you know, there wouldn't be, self-defense deaths there would be i don't know if that's the equivalent of um a justice system um but well how could it be though if if the if the violence the initiation of violence has ended then how could like say someone came and murdered somebody you love whatever in an ancap society how how could you gain justice for that i mean in my world 
I would want to ostracize myself. I'd want to let everybody know that this person's a murderer. But for people who that's not good enough, who even though this person all of a sudden can't get work, he can't, he doesn't have any friends because everybody doesn't want to associate with a murderer, blah, blah, blah. He's, it's a terrible situation, which would create massive incentive for people not to murder anybody. Um, in your world, where that's, maybe that's not good enough, how could you then aggress against him to imprison him or I mean, what bring force him to like some sort of a negotiating table? I mean, what in your world is, is the solution? What would you well, be satisfied with if, if some friend of yours or some loved one of yours was murdered by somebody? If I could, if I could just step in here for a second um, and take over the question, if it's all right. Um, so I've been a martial artist since I was, since I was 10, so for about 24 years. And you constantly are taught about how you have to meet force with force, right? So you have to meet force with the same amount of force that you ex- that gets exhibited onto you. So, you know, some guy pushes you, you know, do you have to get into an altercation where you end their life? No. If you can escape the, can you, if you, if you can escape the fight, you should, right? Shouldn't enter into a situation which you have to utilize your abilities. So, you know, if someone cuts me off in traffic, do I get to uh, sue them? No, unless there's damage done to my property or myself. But when does self-defense become an issue where you're no longer self-defense, it's now a attack? And, you know, let's say someone goes to punch me in the face, and I put them down on the ground, and they get back up. And they go to punch me again. Well, did I neutralize the threat? I neutralized one threat, but I didn't necessarily neutralize the threat from coming at me again. So if someone were to come into my house and shoot uh, one of my family members, and I looked right at him in the face and said, are you done? You know, and they would, they, let's say they say, no, I'm not done. I'm going to shoot this guy next. You know, yeah. but, you know, when, when, it, when is it self-defense? You're all within that moment. You're, you're not, everything is self-defense, I believe, until that threat is neutralized, neutralized. The threat is neutralized. Everything is in a neutral position. So when someone comes to your house and kills your dog and, and is looking at you the entire time they're killing your dog, and he leaves. Is the threat neutralized? I don't think so because he's doing it in a threatening manner in which there might be more danger coming down the pike, right? It might be coming down more or coming down later. So I don't think we've – I don't think simply ostracizing him tells you that you're safer. You know, I think that there needs to be some kind of other step-in process that deals with that situation because the threat is not neutralized. Um, does that mean that I get to, I have the chance to, I have the, I have to go after that guy and, and kill him? That's where the interesting conversation comes in. Um, that's where it gets kind of blurry, you know. Is there a state system set up, or not a state system, but is there a system set up within Afghanistan, you know, in, and, and Kapistan that deals with people that step out of line? It might be different in every single society and every single societal norms. Like, you know, if we're talking about the Hans Her- Her- uh, Hermann Hoppe concept, Hop A, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, concept that uh, everything's gonna, everybody's going to live in enclaves with social norms that we all agree upon before moving there or living there. And you, if you want to not live by those social norms, you, li- you move out of that enclave into another enclave. Um, they might have different ways of dealing with each individual circumstance. But I don't, for me personally, I don't think that if someone came into my house and did an unspeakable act to a family member of mine, if I would be okay with just simply not allowing them to do business in certain businesses, I think that I would definitely be of the mindset that this person needs to be uh, made an example of one, but two needs, um, 
you know, retaliatory, the same exact level of uh, retaliation needs to be brought upon them that happened to me. And if that happens to be that, you know, uh, I know that capital punishment is a, is a, is a, is a, um, you know, Ron Paul would, would, would vote against capital punishment, right? And I, I agree with that. But we're talking right now in, in a self-defense aspect. Not He's not a danger to society at large. This person's a danger to you, right? And I think that's a big difference. Okay, so so he comes in and he, he kills your wife or whatever. Um, are you saying that you would need his wife to die or he would need to die in order for you to feel that justice has been served or the, 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 the threat has been neutralized? Uh, if a guy comes into my house and something happens, I feel like I need to I, – him, not his wife. His wife is a completely separate entity than himself. I, I don't feel that that's right to go after innocent people that have committed no, no issues, right? I mean, well, I don't think – Well, but you said I, – I hate to quibble with what your words are, but you said that the exact same thing needs to happen to him that happened to you. Yeah, but I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. Maybe my my miswording was you know bad wording okay. there. But my point is okay. that retaliatory justice needs to happen to that person, right? Not not. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, obviously, if if that person did something unspeakable to one of my children, which I don't have any children, but if I ever did, um, I don't feel like their children are an equal, you know, an eye for an eye, equal equal opportunity employer here. I don't feel like that at all. I feel you know like they did a mistake, did something, something should happen to them. I don't, but. I don't know what that statute of limitations is. What is that? What is that? How far away are we talking about? If I let six years go by and then I decide, you know what, I'm not okay with this. Is that okay? I don't. I don't know. You know, I mean, this is the gray area. I think is the is the good conversation that we need to have as as anarcho capitalists and as people that think along these lines. I think that there's not enough of this kind of conversation, and I think that we all just kind of say, oh, I'm going to go to some arbitrator. Um, I don't know. You should put yourself into certain situations. I don't know if you're going to be okay with an arbitrator. You know, if somebody if something if somebody came in and did something bad to your kids, are you going to be okay with just sitting in court and arbitrating in court across from a guy who did something extremely dangerous with your child? With your child, I mean, um, you know, we've seen a lot of cases in the past where we have court systems and people can't handle it, and they end up, you know, shooting the guy on the way to the court the courtroom. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things here, a lot of you know areas that need to be covered. Yeah, Definitely. I think that's that's interesting because you know if we do compare it to the current system. Uh, it is there is no real recompense for victims right it's always the they're paying for their crimes to society by going to prison or or whatever there's no like making the uh the victim whole in some fashion right like all the restitution goes to the state right and this movie that system's yeah. no good well and if you watch in in boondock saints to bring it back to boondock saints for a second uh, if you watch the end, you know, the end of the movie, the, the, the closing credits are all about how um, people in society kind of side with the boondock scenes. They side with these two brothers because these brothers are doing what the police, in their view, cannot do or what the state justice department cannot do, which is provide a level of, of retaliation or a level of justice that is outside of what the normal state provided service can do. Now, whether we think that's right or wrong, I think it plays back into that innate sense of justice that you have on that playground where you say, hey, it's wrong to steal this candy bar. Hey, it's wrong to kill these people. Hey, it's wrong to extort uh, money from a bar or a place of business. And that where are you going to go, right? You're going to go to the two brothers because these guys or whatever, or whatever, you know, um, uh, 
vehicle or firm would provide this service because they're going to provide a level of justice that the societal norm might be in this particular society in Boston. If we were to call, if we, I, I know it's hard to believe that if we're going to talk about Massachusetts and Boston without laws. So yeah, this is a, this is very, very hard because these guys tax like nobody's business. So it's very, you know, just a lot of mis disbelief here. But let's just assume that these guys lived in Afghanistan, you know, uh, and Kapistan, and there was no law. And you went to these two brothers. I think the norm in that, at least at that time period, at least what's in that movie, these guys, you know, the, the, norm, the societal norm would be like, yeah, let these guys do what they want to do. Let them, let them take care of business. Right. And, but what if in the situation where they step out of bounds, I mean, would, and somebody else calls, you know, they, they, let's say they kill somebody for selling drugs, which in, in Kapistan would be a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Um, but they have some sort of moral compunction, whether handed down to them by their god or what have you. Um, I guess they would suffer market consequences, but I guess would they? No, I'm still thinking about it. Sorry. Um, no, that's fine. We're, that's what we're here. To, that's what we're here to do. I don't think anybody, you know, uh, I'm trying to think about all the literature and everything I've read. Um, you know, usually what people do is they usually say something, you know, when I went to Mises University and I, and I sat there with Bob Murphy and he talked about the stateless society and what the, the things would be, you know, going to the moon or, or, you know, NASA traveling or all this kind of stuff. Um, we talk in a very, very large generalities. And I think that a lot of times we don't really put the scientific method necessarily of skepticism to what we're saying. And I'm not saying that we're wrong. What I'm saying is that these gray areas are what we need to discuss. And I don't think that anybody really has this thing, you know, um, locked down. And if we did, I think that we would have, uh, you know, we would we, not saying we have more, more compelling evidence or more compelling arguments, but we're dealing with we've we've all three of us were born into the society where we were taught that you know you need the state you need the government you need this we somehow had our come to Jesus moment where we said you know what we don't and it's not it, it, we don't have all the answers because these are this is to some degree territory which is not necessarily laid out before us we don't have a road we're going in on you know not just us but a lot of other people we're all going in a territory with machetes and we're knocking down you know huge forests here so i don't think there's a problem with just talking the th the idea through thank you for bringing up my roads because <laughs> that's another argument <laughs> against our uh, position but i don't want to go down that road uh because i think it's thoroughly debunked by walter block and many others absolutely but uh yeah i think this is interesting because when you were talking about you know the same level of um justice being, you know, exacted upon the person who perpetrated against you. Uh, that brought into a new light the whole Hatfield and McCoy's thing, because that's often brought up against the idea or concept of Ancapistan, you know, because what prevents the Hatfield and McCoy situation from happening where, you know, you're killing this person and then they react by killing an, a person on your end, and then before you know it, the whole world's blind, right, to mix metaphors. Um, but I, I do think that there would be mechanisms in place or maybe even the Steph Molyneux, you know, DRO and the reputation system uh, that would play a role in whether people are able to, you know, interact with each other in um, commerce or in association. People would have reputations. Um, they'd have dispute resolution organizations. They'd have insurance. It would be like having insurance, right? 
and, and it would sort of almost be compulsive in a way, like this was one of my initial resistances to fully going ANCAP was when my friend was telling me about the DRO stuff. And I was like, and the reputation system, because I was like, you know, then I have to participate in this system, right? If I don't participate in it, then I can't buy anything. I can't eat at a restaurant. I can't uh, stay at a hotel. So I am, in a way, compelled to participate. And I don't know if, I'm, if I've lost you guys already. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I understand. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but then, you know, as I've matured a bit, and I hope that I have a little at least, uh, I feel like that's almost the same argument that, um, like, a Venus Project guy would make against nature. You know, I, I'm forced to use my labor to interact with my environment to satisfy my wants. You know, I'm forced to work. I'm forced to exert effort. And I think it's not totally super equivalent, but it's uh, it's kind of like each other in my mind now. That's sort of how I've... I've come to terms with uh, the, you know, it's to my advantage to have the DRO insurance. It's to my advantage to improve my um, reputation score, you know, similar to my credit score or the uh, Sesame score in China, right? You've heard about this, Michael? Yes, I understand what you're saying. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and you know, of course, that thing is a state-sponsored abomination that's uh, enforcing patriotism to communism. So, of course, it's evil, but I think in, in Ancapistan, there would be something similar in place, you know, sort of like a, like a reputation system, essentially. And that would get us away sort of from the Hatfield-McCoy situation. It would reduce violence significantly, and it would be a, a drastic improvement over the current criminal justice system that is in place today. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the crimes of, organized crime in the world today. I mean, they almost entirely exist in government-created black markets with gambling, prostitution, drugs, guns. Uh, they do do some immoral things where they kill and whatnot, but they're often, they're not allowed to, you know, use like the court systems if they have an internal dispute. So, I think a lot of the violence that you get from the mafia, which is essentially government created, I mean, with prohibition and other things like that, and the war on drugs and that sort of thing, which artificially reduces the supply and creates the huge profit margins at high risk. But a lot of these things wouldn't wouldn't exist in Ancapistan, so there wouldn't be this incentive to violence. Right, and then you speak of organized crime and... and there, the government is the biggest organized crime, of course. So there's a c distinction in the private level of organized crime that is a result of government prohibitions and, and regulations and rules and laws. But then the government itself is even worse. But yeah, most, yeah. Public, public crime is, is it dwarfs private crime by many folds. I, I don't know. There's, those are impossible numbers to come up with, but absolutely. Yeah, well, I, did just, hear, I did hear that civil asset forfeiture is actually a greater amount per year, like in billions of dollars, than reported theft. Absolutely. And that's just what's reported. And that's, <laughs> right. But, you know, you get something stolen from you, you file a police report, what's the value of this? They add all that up over the course of a year, and then they add up all the civil, civil asset forfeiture that the police just take from you. 
and it's actually the police take more than the criminals well than than the private criminals do. <laughs> and oh, that's absolutely. just in that one area. Not right. to mention taxation and all the other things, all the regulations that prevent businesses and Oh yeah, just sort of stifling business and opportunity. It's 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 criminal. Uh, we almost we almost had one we almost had somebody become president recently. That would have been uh perfect example of government corruption. But anyway, the um, what do you call it? Another, oh, you want to talk about uh, ostracization? Um, you know, we already we did already see that kind of in the past, right? When you were part of the Catholic Church and you were you know you were ostracized and you were uh, this you know um, uh, discommunicated. Excommunicated. Yep. Yeah. Excommunicated. My fault. I apologize. I haven't been a Catholic in a long time. Uh, when you've been excommunicated from the church. It wasn't like it is today. Like, if you're excommunicated from the church today, oh, you still have a life. But we're talking back then, if you were excommunicated from the church, it meant your entire society was against you. You know, everything that was around you didn't do business with you, you know, didn't, didn't interact with you. Um, so we already have historical precedent um, to look at, right, if we wanted to examine what would happen to somebody if, they're, if they were excommunicated from society in smaller enclaves. Right, we would we already have that kind of um, that precedent. So I think that's interesting, something to look at, something to, to definitely look into. Yeah, yeah I like um, the idea of uh, the ahead, top uh, uh, enclaves because then you would sort of have a choice in, hey, I'm willing to live by this set of conduct, and someone else may choose something else, and so they'll go migrate towards those areas, right? And it's not even a state; it's just like-minded or similarly minded people deciding that, hey, I, I want to have this kind of rule of conduct and I want to have this other kind. So they'll naturally move to those areas. And I think this is where he talks about the physical removal if somebody is in that area that doesn't ascribe to those norms of that area, right? Correct. And that's, well, that, I have two contentions. I have one contention. I have huge, con I have a huge contention with the you know, the, the HHH groups and people that are just, they just take that one quote of Hoppe's and they run with it. It drives me absolutely insane. Please read his entire book. Read all of his books. <laughs> I hate that. I hate when people just pull that one, that one paragraph out of that thing and they go, see, you can just physically remove people. And they make memes out of this, you know, dropping people out of helicopters. His whole point is exactly what you just said, right? There's a lot more to the concept than just drop people out of the thing. You'd have to be part of it. You'd have to, you know, decide that you were going to live by the Ancapistan rule of that enclave. And if you'd started acting outside of what uh, an Ancap is, then you'd have, you know, if you don't, if you don't decide to leave and go to some other place, then they would have to physically remove you. But not just, you know, arbitrarily, you know. Dan decides one day that he's going to live by certain rules, so he buys a helicopter. That's you know that's not the that's not the point of the meme, you know. Right, and and this this plays well into the whole ANCAM, ANCOM, ANCAP situation, where an ANCAP is perfectly fine with there being communes. You know, hey, if you fools who don't understand economics want to all band together and live by each, take from each, whatever, do it. But leave us alone, but they Absolutely. can't return the favor. Like, if they have communism, it has to be everywhere. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not quote-unquote fair. Uh, and it still wouldn't work. In fact, it would work even worse. <laughs> It'd just be amplified. Um, but anyway, I know, I know, Robert, you wanted to jump in, and I cut you off there, so I hope we didn't detract too far if we want to go back to your point. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely lost my, my train of thought on that, but that's okay. I what did want to mention, um, I forget if we were having a conversation with an ANCAP recently or there's been some articles posted online about seasteading. And there was a person that was really pushing forward that, towards that idea where, you know, out in this, um, you know, unowned, essentially unclaimed land in the ocean that doesn't belong to any specific country, and I see belong in quotation marks, um, we can essentially set these enclaves up. Do you remember what I'm talking about, Daniel? I'm familiar with the seasteading concept, but I don't know if I recall us speaking with anyone on the show specifically about it. Um, but it does, with you speaking about it, it, it makes me think, you know, what legitimate claim does a government have over the 90% of the unused land in the West in the United States, right? And mm-hmm. it, it makes me wonder if, um, you know, the Clive and Bundy, that, that whole situation with the um, Department of Oregon. Resources or whoever, you know, what claim do they have against on that property? So perhaps they were, quote-unquote, seasteading or homesteading that area because it's not legitimately owned by the government. They use it. They've been using it for years. I, I don't know the full details of the situation, but I think I recall that they had been using it for a long time, and then the government was now trying to tell them they couldn't. Wasn't that Was that the Oregon situation where they were burning, and then they were told that they couldn't burn to – or is that something? Am I, am I getting confused? Uh, that sounds like it might be part of it. Like the burning they were doing was actually beneficial. Like it was preventing yeah. potential harm, you know, later. But yeah, yeah. The, you preemptive burn so that you don't get a giant forest fire that wipes everything out. And uh, then they came in and fined them for burning down public land. Yeah, basically, they, I think what I think the general idea is that you create like a perimeter, right, of barren land. And that barren that that becomes like a uh, becomes an area which if there ever is a fire it doesn't spread past that little area that you've already cleared out. I mean I think that's the general understanding and I think that's what part of what they were doing down there. And I think you are right. Um, did they see? Did they homestead it though? Um, you I'm assuming you both are familiar with the Lockean proviso and Lock and Locke's concept of uh, what homesteading is. Yeah, give us the breakdown real quick, just so that uh, our, our listeners who might not be as in tune with us as we are. No, no. Yeah, go ahead and go through it. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> listeners. I don't mean to talk down to you guys. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, everyone has a different level of coming in on this thing. So uh, I'll try to summarize it real quick. Right, John Locke, you know, introduced this idea of of, um, of homesteading, which is you have to mix your 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 labor with the land, and that basically allows you to say that you have some kind of ownership over it. So, you know, you, you walk into a field, no one's been there forever, and there's an apple tree, and you just, and there's uh, pine trees, and there's, and there's, and there's um, other kind of trees there, and you clear out some of the land, so you start working with it. You pick some of the apples from the apple tree, and you create a, a, a home, and you live around that area, and that certain area where you've mixed your labor with the land is what we call homesteading. The Lockean proviso on that is that you have to leave it in good or better condition for the future use, right? So if I have that land and I decide that I'm going to take uh, AA batteries and bury them all over the land so I poison it uh, so I can kill the property for future owners, 
uh, I'm, I'm not uh, keeping it in as good or better shape. So that's the proviso, and that has some um, that has some contention to it, depending on who you're talking to in the libertarian world or the Ancapistan world or the world like that. But that proviso, uh, I think, is a good barometer of do I have the ability to ruin this property for others that it exists for after I die, right? So I think that's the point, right? You know. If, if I have a, a you know a magical golden ring and I say the next person that wears it dies, did I you know, is it really did I homestead that that ring right? So you know if I poison the land around me, is it is it really homesteaded? Uh, I don't not that's an interesting gray area too, but um, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but that's basically homesteading in a nutshell. Did the government homestead an area of land which they came to acquire? Um, through means that might ne not necessarily have been just or, or you know or prompt, right? So the Louisiana Purchase was a purchase done by uh, by our boy Jefferson. Uh, was it just? That's all a matter of debate. But it was a trade that was a contractual trade that was com that was done. Was there other trades that happened in the Midwest that were necessarily just trades, or were they stolen? Was it stolen land? That's where it becomes interesting, right? If it's stolen land, is it good? Is it okay to then call it homesteaded by the government? Yeah, for me, uh, government just seems to claim land. I mean, yes, the Louisiana Purchase was a purchase of a bunch of land from France, but did France necessarily own that land? I mean, yes, they explored that land, but you wouldn't say that France, like, homesteaded all that land, nor would you say that the United States government homesteaded the entire United States. I agree with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. I'm just trying to set up the argument, but yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like fencing stolen goods, right? Like, is it a legitimate trade at that, at that point? Plus, they're all using stolen money. They're illegitimate entities to begin with that are just groups of individuals, so they can't really own thing in a collective fashion anyway, right? Which is why I think you know, I, the Ancapistan model works better because if I'm a one individual and I come across 20,000 acres of land, can I legitimately by myself without any capital um, investment, can I legitimately homestead 20,000 you know, uh, acres of land? Probably not, right? I probably am limited to 10 to 20 to 30 acres of land, 40 acres of land at most, unless I start acquiring capital goods and I start, you know, you know what I mean? I, I, there's no way that I could say, see everything that's here and the things I can't see that I haven't touched yet. Yeah, I homesteaded that. So don't, you know, don't step on my land. I don't think it's possible. I think that you automatically are limited by what you can actually touch, feel, and uh, create, right? Um, so I think if we went back in those days and we actually had Ancapistan, I think you'd, you'd see more of that. Yeah. Totally hey, let's why Let's wind this back to the movie a little bit, and I wanted to talk, ask you, uh, Michael, are you familiar with the uh, justice system that's in place in, say, the Diamond District of New York? I, I, I don't know if it was Rothbard or someone else who said that they, I don't know if it's the Hasidic Jews who are the, the major players there, but there's a whole arbitration system that's fully private that operates outside of our normal, you know, U.S. government-style level of justice. And I'm wondering if you have familiarity with it, and if so, can you speak to it at all? I'm not familiar with that necessarily, but I am Italian. 
Sicilian, as a matter of fact. But um, so I'm a slightly familiar with those kind of things. I'm also very familiar with the uh, what they call the, the you know the Chinese banking system, um, or if you're Korean, it's the Korean banking system, or if you're Japanese, it's the Japanese banking system, which operates um, underground, completely outside of the grid of normal society. And I'm assuming from what you're about to explain to me about the the diamond districts inner workings that it kind of works similarly but yeah well I pretty much blew my load on what I knew about it uh, I just recall that somebody made mention of it being an example of a justice system outside of a government entity and it works very very well um, it's yeah, I think it was using examples maybe by Rothbard or maybe by like an Ed Stringham because he always talks about private security versus public uh, and, and other arbitration systems uh, that that tend to work uh, as examples in society. And so maybe that's something that we can explore a little bit further uh, in future shows and, and find some articles to reference down below in the show notes for this page because I think it is an interesting concept to look at examples of of where systems are in place that function very well that aren't part of the government-mandated system. Well, think about how people utilize um, – so first off, it's a cultural thing that exists within a culture, so a social norm and an enclave, right? Just like if we were talking about the Sicilian Mafia uh, back from way back in the day, we're talking about an, a, a small societal thing, which you know doesn't just exist in Sicily, but a small societal thing that's like an enclave that's no, a social norm that everyone accepts to be – part of the normal everyday process and when there isn't things to sell like drugs and all those kind of things and there's a specific markets that these guys exist in right and they do provide a service and they might utilize intimidation practices and all those kind of things and and, and extortion and theft in other words to get their base income by the way which is no different than what we're saying that the you know this taxation is theft. What the government would do, you know, to extort your business, you know, the government says, you know, yeah, I need 40% of your income, and the mafia might say, hey, we only want 10%. But if hey, if there's ever a problem, you know, come come see us. Well, you know, they the, the, if the if the if the particular mafia in a Sicilian society was to say, screw you guys, we're not going to help you at all, they would lose favor with the entire society. And they would get kicked out of their of their own power, and they know that, right? So you can only piss off very small groups. You can't piss off everybody. And I'm assuming within the diamond world, one of your coercive abilities is the fact that each diamond is worth a lot of money, right? And that diamonds themselves are a fantastic store of the ability of of their. And I mean, store of value, not in the Keynesian sense. I mean, a store of value in the sense that you it's money that it's very hard to destroy. It's money that can that can um, uh, stand the test of time. I don't mean value as in you know uh, value you know you know theory of value you know, labor theory of value kind of stuff. Um, what I, I so, made that diamond with my bare hands. Uh, yes, you're like Superman. You crushed the coal together. Uh, no, but so diamonds are very very well known to be a um, to be a, a great source of untraceable wealth from from different families all over the place forever because there's no markings on it, there's no social security number on it, there's none of that stuff. You just have that diamond from 
X, Y, and Z place, and you're able to put it through and you have diamonds forever over here, and it's easy to sell, and there's no real way to say that diamond came from this exact place, right? Um, so it's very easy to launder money through diamonds and, and different gemstones, especially diamonds. Um, De Beers, by the way, you know, artificially produces the, the, the um, value of diamonds by, you know, stockpiling a whole bunch um, and, and releasing only a few uh, diamonds in, uh, compared to their supply uh, per year. So De Beers is the, is the worst monopoly of all time uh, in the diamond world. And but I'm assuming because it's solely powered by government, right? Like any monopoly to exist needs to be supported by government, otherwise it would lose its ability to be a monopoly, right? Absolutely. And matter of fact, there's a really cool show out. Uh, just it just ended called Taboo. It's on FXX, um, and I really recommend everybody watch it. Tom Hardy uh, is the is the major um, actor in the movie, in the show, I should say. Uh, there's eight episodes. It's only done one season. And the entire thing is about different taboo subjects, and one of them happens to be Monopoly. So in the, in the story, he ends up having to fight with the Americans and the British government over a little piece of land over in Vancouver area, and it actually is a trade route between China and America and Canada, and he wants the monopoly on all trade of tea from China to the American continent, which this happens, by the way, in the early 1800s. So we're talking about the, the birth of uh, the American continent, right? So he wants the monopoly, the monopoly trade, and he's willing to sell it to either the, that little coast of that little, that little area. He's willing to sell it to either the Americans or the British, and he wants to get it sold. So it's, again, it, the show is awesome because it points out that monopoly only exists because the government will force monopoly to exist, uh, competition will automatically destroy it. And in, and this, and back to Boondock Saints, this is we're talking about two brothers that are that would be giving us one um, vigilante group that we can go to for justice, but there might be 20 others, right? So if, if these brothers do something that's outside of the norm, right, you just go to the other vigilante group and say, hey, these guys are out there going nuts, you got to stop them. You gotta you gotta end those two guys because they're they're off popping out people that they shouldn't be popping off, right? And uh, I think that's the way that you would you would handle it is you would have competing firms um, keeping each other in check. Yeah, so right. not, not you can to... also you can also yeah remove your business from the ones you don't support you don't agree with even if they're not necessarily going too far outside of the social norms that they you know ought to be. Uh, aggressed against or murdered or whatever, but yeah, if you don't agree with their practices or whatever, you could support somebody who you do. What were you going to say, Dan? Yeah, so I'm wondering if this, not not to take it too far away from the Boondock Saints again, but um, this Tom Hardy show you were talking about, uh, I actually used to live on an island that used to be divided between the United States and the British, and there's actually two um, old military bases on it that are now national parks. And Robert came out to visit me um, once, and we hiked around what was the British camp, but on the south end of the island was the American camp, and it was where the pig war uh, happened. And I'm wondering if that's related to this Tom Hardy thing, because there was dispute over this particular island being owned by the British and, and hence Canada or the United States. Was it a um, ex uh, Indian territory? 
well, it was all populated in, by indigenous peoples, you know, for At hundreds of years. But it, I don't know if it was ever considered like a reservation or anything like that. Well, in the in the movie, he gets his mother is actually from North America. And uh, she's a Native American, and she's from I forget I to be honest with you I forgot what tribe she's from, but her people are from a particular island that uh, sits around um, in between the Canadian border and the American border. But that little area that is right there um, was from the Nuka tribe, I believe it's called, or it was called the Nuka territory. And uh, so it might be actually it might be based on something that actually existed in real life. It might very well be. Um, you know, based on a concept, there was a piece of land like that. But um, it's a it's it's a very interesting concept, right? That that uh, he's he knows that monopoly exists because government is an intervention. He knows he's got to go to one of the two countries, and he's English himself. But he's got he knows he's got to play each country against each other to get the best deal. He knows that. It's pretty cool. Very cool story. And just yeah, one yeah. episode focuses on the uh, Monopoly? Oh, no, all eight episodes focus on the Monopoly. That's, that's the whole point of the show. Well, that's the whole point of the show is it, it, how he can take advantage of, uh, of his, newly inherited, his newly inherited property. It's really cool. It's a really cool movie. Uh, TV show, I should say. I keep saying movie because Tom Hardy, for me, is a movie guy. But, uh, and, he's one, and the best part about that whole show is Ridley Scott's involved. There's a whole bunch of A-list actors that are not A-list, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, well, I guess they're A-list, a whole bunch of different actors that are on that thing. And uh, just an awesome show. And, he's, and Tom Hardy's one of the showrunners. So he's keeping it very interesting, and it's definitely not Hollywood. And uh, there's a bunch of moments that you wouldn't expect that, that pop up constantly. It's just very well written. Um, big surprises, and it's a it's a, it's a it, it's very cool, and it's a lot different than you would normally expect from uh, from TV. Just like Boondock Saints. I mean, I didn't expect uh, I didn't expect a movie to really deal with, you know, there's movies like The, the Punisher, which kind of deals with vengeance in a similar concept, right? You have a vigilante running around, running around out there um, that, you know, he's dispensing justice again for his. It starts off with his own self, right? He's getting vengeance for his, for his own his death of his own family. But then, you know, he starts getting, he starts helping out people around him, his neighbors and everything else. And at the end of the movie, you're kind of left with this idea that the, the Punisher is out there to take really the bad guys out. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, and sure. his uh, his neighbors, they accept him. They social norms again, accept that level of vengeance. Uh, so, I, I, again, that kind of brings us back to my point that I think that there's an innate sense of retaliation or innate sense of, fairness that everybody wants to play or be part of or understand or have happen when something bad goes down, right? Um, and now... Yeah, there, the, are, there are many, yeah, instances of, like, vigilanteism that uh, is very popular in the world, right? I mean, you've got, like you said, the Punisher. You've got, like, the A-Team back in the 80s, if you know that. That was all about people who couldn't get their jobs done or couldn't get help from the cops, so they hired the A-Team. I've always, I've always wanted to be Murdoch, but I, um, but I, I never got the chance to walk around with a sock around my hand. But I always wanted to be Murdoch. He was always the funnest one. There's, there's a great article uh, on Mises.org called "The A Team Stands for Anarcho-Capitalism," and it's, it's a fun read. I'll uh, post that in our show notes. Very cool. Yeah, but I mean, superhero genre in general. I mean, you got Batman. You got I, I I can't think of any others right now off the top of my head, but like 
Iron Fist and uh, Power Man and Luke Cage. I mean, all kinds of uh, superheroes are vigilantes. Black Panther. There you go. Um, Tons and tons of them. I mean, they're just all over the place. Captain America, Iron Man. They're all vigilantes, all operating outside of the quote-unquote system, but they're always the, the hero of the story. So I think you're, you're absolutely right, Michael. Well, look at Billy Connolly, right, the guy who plays El Duce. Um, we have two firms right now competing against each other in the – back to Boondock Saints in the movie. You have two firms competing against each other. You've got the two brothers, the Boondock Saints, and you have the Italian mob in this particular area, right? And they're competing against each other. And what does the Italian mob do is they reach out to the maximum security prison and they let El Duce free. So they have one one you know illegal firm says you know what we're gonna get we're gonna get rid of this other illegal firm, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they call in El Duce, another illegal guy, right? Again, outside of the state, I don't mean illegally as in necessarily bad. I mean illegally as in it wouldn't live up to our standard today. But in in, in Kapistan, one firm calls another firm and gets the the cleaner out. The cleaner comes in and tries to get rid of his own bro- his own sons. He doesn't know that, and then they end up becoming their own firm at the end of the movie, right, and taking out the Italian guy instead. Um, so it's interesting that we already have in the movie itself the mechanism in which one firm would um, just, you know, would uh, take care of another firm, right? What is it? Right, by going to the third firm, which was the whole thing that Ayn Rand missed and which maintained her being a minarchist. Right. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Big fan of Ayn Rand. And I would just like to bring in one more point. The only problem that I have with the insurance thing, and I, and, I, and I admit that it is a solution, the only problem I have with the insurance thing is that what often is missed is the, um, the disassociation that, that money is going to be able to bring back a wholeness to the situation. Right. So, you know, if I have a wife, which I do have a wife, and something happens to my wife and I have insurance out on my wife against... I don't know, whatever, robbery, you know, uh, murder or something. Um, yeah, I do get, I do get um, a check for $10 million, right? So there is that insurance, but that's not going to bring back my wife, you know? So a lot of times I hear uh, ANCAPs and stuff bring up the insurance thing, and while I agree that is, it, is a, it is a solution, it still misses the subjectivity. It misses the whole entire point that we just brought up before about how people have different, different subjective wants and that, you know, if I have insurance out on somebody uh, for whatever reason, including myself, it still doesn't necessarily make up for the loss of what I might value more, right? So, Yeah, that's, that's a very good point, and, and I will concede that wholeheartedly, but I will say one thing, that the bar compared to what we have today is so incredibly low. You know, the current justice system is not going to bring her back either, and it's not going to recompense you in any sense. So anything that's going to be a non-state monopolized solution is going to be an improvement, and uh, that opens up a world of possibilities. To that, I would... I agree. I agree with you, absolutely. To that, I would add that without all these government regulations and impositions and uh, creations of um, things being illegal and not being illegal, that there would be so much more opportunity for people to um, employ their, their skills and their means to be productive than there is in existence today. 
So I think that the amount of criminality would in fact go down significantly. And so I think overall crime would reduce. And, and you know, I'm sort of looking at my fortune teller like crystal ball here. But if you don't have somebody mandating that you can't work below a certain wage, you can't work in this field or that field, or you need to have this type of license or this type of regulation or this type of permit, um, just think of how much more productive people could be. And, you know, that reduces the, the uh, incentive to do something that is uh, violent or criminal to, you know, achieve their, their ends, right? Only the, the real crazies would be the ones being violent. I totally agree with you, but look, let's look, let's look back to look forward, right? So if we go back to the wild, wild west, how many people actually had shootouts and how many people actually stole, you know, uh, robbed trains? When or stagecoaches, yeah. Or stagecoaches, right? The, the book, the, the Not So Wild, Wild West, a great book, by the way. Um, I actually lent it out and I never got it back, so I actually don't have it. Uh, I usually have it on my shelf. Theft! Theft. Go to your Theft. Uh, it's, an, it's, an, it's a fellow ANCAP, so I can't, you know, I'm just going to get it back from him eventually. But a um, uh, great book, but we've, when, we, when we actually look at the wild, wild west, we find out that there was maybe like, I think it was around three or four shootouts, and they mostly were done to shoot somebody in the back. And when we look at train robberies, I think it's between nine and 12. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the wild, wild west. We're not talking about a crime, you know, um, infested, crazy, everyone's dying all the time um, type scenario that's just, that, that gets constantly, constantly pushed in our face in, in modern media. This, that doesn't happen. It's all a figment. So I think, I think you're absolutely right that if without, without the government constantly being there, that it would happen less and less and less. I totally agree with you. And I also agree. I also think that if you didn't have things like the Food and Drug Administration, you didn't have health departments. Like right now, we grew up. We, me, all three of us grew up in a time period where we had health departments, and so it never crossed our mind what actually is going on in the kitchen. But if tomorrow we lived in Af in, in Kapistan, you're goddamn right that I would walk into a restaurant and I would say, "Can I please see your kitchen?" You know what I mean? I, it would be, it would be in my, you know, until I got comfortable with that restaurant, I want to see what's going on back there, you know, and um, I want to make sure there's no rats just hanging around next to the cheese, and I want to make sure that we're good to go, and I don't, and any, any, any restaurant that was worth its salt would definitely bring in the back and be proud to show you around. Right, yeah, and I think the yeah. whole uh, concept of licenses and certifications on that level, so long as they're voluntary, uh, would play a role in, you know, accrediting, um, establishments, right? Like it would lend to their reputation and help them in, increase their sales and, and their bottom line. Well, look at Yelp, man. We, anytime that there's a problem, you go right on Yelp. Oh, uh, yeah, my food was terrible. Yes, there was a rat in my salad, um, you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and the majority of people are going to tell the truth. You're going to get every once in a while, you're going to get a bad complaint or something like that. And every once in a while, you're going to have somebody go on there and lie. But if you have 600, 700, 800 people going on there to make a comment about a particular restaurant and they got a four and a half stars, you're pretty sure that, hey, at least four and a, you know, uh, 600 people, that's a lot of people that were, were really pleased with this restaurant. And that might be enough for some people. But I think that if, you, if a restaurant knew that they were very likely to have their customers say, let's walk back here, <laughs> I got to tell you, if I owned a restaurant and I knew that 90% of my customers were going to see my kitchen, 
my kitchen would be unbelievable. Forget the forget whatever standards exist uh, on the books today. If I knew that my customers were going to see what was back there, I would. Oh my God, you could you could you'd want to eat in the kitchen. You wouldn't want to eat out in the dining room. Yeah, having these departments just uh, it really does create this false sense of security, and it creates a a, a lazy consumer thinking that um, these products are all been checked and they're all good and they're all healthy and. They get the stamp of approval from this government entity that is terrible, but people trust it for some reason. Who knows why? Indoctrination and patriotism, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> yeah, these uh, it would be much, much better, and there would be a market incentive to display um, those sorts of things that you guys are talking about, these uh, – kind of reputation things or maybe like having glass in your kitchen. The, the, the diners can actually look in there and see it, and you might want to frequent that more often than another place, and that place would get popular and be very successful if they're uh, open about their um, their methods and their cleanliness. Right, and then, you know, anytime there is a failure in the uh, health code, like food inspector types, you know, E. coli outbreaks or a restaurant does have rat parts in the uh, – salad, uh, people are quick to blame capitalism, right, when it's clearly a failure of the current system that's in place, you know, this health department mandated inspections and, and all that stuff. So it's kind of funny to see that when, when those little outbreaks do happen and then you look down in the comments on those local stories and everyone's uh, basically taking taking the health department's word for it like, Oh yeah, if, you know this place is is doing bad business. It's capitalism. It's terrible, but it's the health department that failed them, right? And it's the health department that told them they didn't have to worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the problem is when we have licensure, we believe that that person somehow is, you know, above some kind of standard that makes them, uh, you know. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not untouchable, but like beyond reproach, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? So what happened? So let me, let's ask, you know, all three of us, what happened in 2008 when all these people that were these financial consultants and everyone else that was licensed, they had, they all, they did their, their number seven tests or whatever, uh, their series seven, they did all that fun stuff. They got all the licenses and, and everything else. And they were just going, you know, uh, balls to the wall selling, uh, you know, ninja loans that had uh, zero, you know, people who were making like, you know, $40,000 a year with six mortgages and all that fun stuff. Didn't they, didn't the guys who sold them those mortgages, all, didn't they all have licenses from the government that said that they were okay to do this and that they knew what they were, what they were, they were doing? Didn't they all have that? Uh, right. Clearly, clearly they did. And because they did, somebody just like the restaurant thought, hey, they must know what they're doing because the government licensed them to do it. I don't need to look into them, and I don't need to look at what they're actually doing. I can just trust that person. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to go back in that guy's kitchen. I'm going to find out what he's cooking up for me, uh, which is what we would do in the restaurant if in, 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 in Kapistan. You would do the same exact thing with this financial advisor. Um, instead of just taking his word for it, you'd say, I want you to show me exactly what you're talking about. I, I got to take responsibility for my own self. And I think that's part of, you know, a, a clear part of what we're talking about here is the boys in Boondock Saints are taking responsibility for their own predicament. And they're not just saying, I'm going to go to the police. The police are going to take care of this. These guys are going to be our, the, the shining star that gets me rehabilitation. 
that's what they're not. That's not what they're doing. They're going. They're saying, I'm going to be responsible. Not only am I going to be responsible, I'm going to be the one that goes out and creates this justice. And that's when they talk to their buddy Rocco, and Rocco says, I know where all these guys live. I know where all the bad guys are. I know where all their their ins and outs are, where they hang out, all that stuff. And the and the boys say, all right, well, we're gonna we're gonna take everybody out on your list first. Um, this is of course after they decide that they're gonna. Um, try to become some kind of business. They go with Rocco, and um, that's when it all goes terribly wrong, right? They meet their father, and they never get a chance to actually... We never get to, we never get a chance to see them take on Bitcoin and, and accept Bitcoin for vengeance um, <laughs> or gold money for vengeance or anything like that. But uh, it would be interesting... It would be interesting if they ever made a... Let's say, that, let's say hypothetically, if they ever made a second one of the movies, you know... Uh, let's let's right. let's pretend like they're going to make a second one, you know. <clears throat> and um, they decided that they started off with gold money. They took gold money and they would go out and be your 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 vengeance for hire, you know. Um, it might be interesting. It might be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you, thank you for bringing it back to the Boondock Saints because I feel like uh, this is one of those episodes where we veered away from the movie for a, a good majority of the time, but I think it was well worth it. And, Michael, I just want to say I appreciate that you came on to uh, do this episode with us because you've thrown a lot of ideas out that make me think we want you back for The Godfather, we want you back for Blood Diamond, we want you back for talking about Taboo with Tom Hardy. Like, man, we you might have just uh, set, set up the calendar for the rest of the year. Well, I'd, be, I'd be I'd be absolutely delighted to be back on the show. I really think it'd be uh, that'd be cool. Thanks, guys. Sure thing, uh, Daniel. Before we kind of wrap things up, I I just wanted to wonder if um, you had any issues with any of the actions of the characters. You know, we usually like to uh, evaluate the morality of the actions of the protagonists. And since there's so much violence in this movie, did, did did anything ever strike you as too far or completely immoral? Or, I mean, did you know were they killing like Russian mobsters who were just just selling drugs to feed their family? Or what what's going on in this movie for you? Well, that's a good question, and that might make this uh, show twice as long. Um... There's sort of this implicit, you know, these are all bad guys. And I, I feel like they sort of make that case to begin with. And and then they also have the uh, the divine inspiration that sort of validates what they're doing. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think there is an argument to be made that, that some of these things were a bit beyond, um, I think, what would be considered moral, especially when Rocco goes into that delicatessen and shoots those two guys. Um, because they were aware that he was sent into a situation uh, where he was thought that he was going to be killed. Um, and we didn't really explain this whole situation, but it was the rope scene where the yep. boys fell out of the, the, the um, ductwork above and, and killed these nine mobsters. Rocco was dressed as a bellboy delivering some food, and he was going to kill this Russian dude, but he only had a six-shot revolver and wasn't told that there were nine guys there. So he was sent in to do this job to kill that guy with full knowledge by the people sending him that he was not going to be, be surviving this situation. Like, he would not be able to complete this mission. So he was sent on this suicide run 
And then he went back to the delicatessen to confront the, the people who were aware of it, and he ended up shooting all of them. So I, I had a little bit of a, a moral issue with that. Uh, even though they uh, sent him in knowing he would die, but they weren't like a threat to him specifically at that moment. So it was a, a bit tough for me. Well, did, did he also, did they, I mean, you say they sent him in. I mean, did they suggest that he go in? Did they order him in or did they threaten him to go in? Or is this something he wanted to do? I mean, what? who's, hey, who's the moral actor in that situation? Yeah, Ra- Raku had been a, um, he'd been in this organization for about 18 years, and he was still, I think they called him a runner or an errand boy or a package boy. Uh, and, you know, he's like near 40 and still doing this. So he was looking at it as his big break to, to go in and, and be a made man, like get made. Okay. He's by making going his bones in. then? Yeah, by shooting this um, this boss, right, this Russian mobster boss. But they told him that there were only going to be like a couple of people there, but there ended up being nine people. And apparently the Italian dudes who sent him in, and he was excited to do it, right, um, were aware. But he was an immoral actor at that point, right? Well, he, he was asked to go in and kill those guys, and he was willing to do it, yes. So he was acting immorally to go and murder nine people, which even if he didn't know there were nine people, he was excited to go murder some people. Yeah, but they were bad dudes, so you know it also falls into the vigilantism, right? So he it does. Fall, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, it does fall. It does fall into the vigilantism, but um, I think it comes down to okay. So let's bring it back to kind of like modern, you know, what happened recently, where you had a guy who might be on the alt right Nazi deal. Um, is it okay just to walk up to him and punch him in the face, right? Is it okay just to walk over to these mobsters and kill them because they had done some bad stuff to people anywhere in the world at some point? I mean, all three of us have committed some kind of NAP violation in our life, whether it be minuscule or, you know, I I doubt that any one of us is like Dexter, but um, I, I think, you know, some one of us has to have at least bumped into somebody accidentally, or Robert, he's onto us. He's onto us, man. You guys no, it's are true. I I did. I I tripped someone um, one time. So absolutely, you're right. You know, so yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm a serial bumper. I bump into people all the time. So uh, constantly within, they can always you know retaliate against me. But um, what you know, is it okay just to have some random person walk up and punch me in the face? Um, or retaliate some, against me, yeah. or retaliate some against some these guys. Crime. Right. So is it so is, is it cool for the 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 Italian guy Rocco to go kill these bad guys simply because they're bad guys? I mean, I I think that there is a there is some kind of moral problem, right? I think so. It sure sounds like it. I mean, not having seen the movie, but from the way you described it, it sounds to me like there is. Right, and then there he goes back be- and kills his own guys. Yeah, and I think right. that you're absolutely right. That just because, because they, uh, it's interesting. They knew he was gonna die, but does that give you the right to shoot them because they knew you were gonna die? They yeah, are they obligated you. to provide, you know, all the information that they know when they send is, somebody off on some sort of a job? Is that like, a violation? It's fraudulent to say that there's only four guys there when they know there are more. Do they know yeah, that but, for a fact? There would be. Well, that's the other thing too, is we don't know that, right? We don't really know that. Yeah, I think I think the the theory presented in the movie is 
uh, one of the boys says to Rocco, hey, man, they knew. They knew that you were going in there with a six-shot gun and there were going to be more guys there. So that was their working theory. And but then when, when Rocco – no, when Rocco confronts them, they, they basically admit it. Okay. And then right. he shoots them for laughing at him about it. Now, is it a violation of the NAP not to tell somebody that you know that they're going to walk into a trap? I think so. I think it's fraudulent, and I think that they're using the situation as the weapon. That's a good point. It's a good point. I agree. I, I agree with you. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to set it up. I'm trying to think about oh, what are the other possibilities. Um, I think it's wrong if, if somebody's going to walk into a trap and you know you did it. And I think they definitely were going to use the situation against him, and they were hoping that he wouldn't come out right. Um, now what? I'm sorry. What is the 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 motive for these people to want Rocco dead? He he's a, a screw up. They've been waiting to get rid of him for a long time. Okay. I don't, I don't know why they, they don't just whack him, right? Isn't that the Italian thing to do? <laughs> they should just whack him. Well, here's why you should just here's why you should just whack him. And this is this is a plot hole that exists in the. It, this is a bad chess move. Um, and I'm not saying that every single mobster is a genius, but this is a very bad chess move if you were talking about one mob to another, one firm to another firm um, in, this, in, the, in this world. The reason why is, why would you want to make waves? Uh, let, let's say you did send this guy out there against nine people and you gave him a six-shooter um, revolver, which he uses completely incorrectly throughout the entire movie. So let's say he, he, he does go out there to, to utilize it. And not all the mob, all the Russian guys, they don't all die. So now they know that you sent the, the Italian mob sent this guy here to kill me. Uh, so now they're gonna they started a mob war all because you wanted to get rid of a little pawn in your organization. Yeah. This yeah, is that's a stupid. This is a stupid <laughs> plan. I mean, this is a this is a really bad allocation of resources. Simply get rid of this guy. You know, uh, if you think he's really that much of a screw up, there's other jobs this guy can do that he he won't be screwing with your organization, or you just get rid of him. You don't send him on a mission where you know that he's not going to come back, and you know that he's very possibly his just his dead body is going to cause a gigantic war that you might not be able to win. The you know they explain how bad the Russians are and how powerful they are right in the beginning of the movie. Why would you want to start an international war over some putz that doesn't make that makes bad jokes? I think there was a war already going on, though, because the, the Russians had been moving in on the Italians' turf, right? Like that bar in the initial scene, the Russians bought the building and were kicking the guy out, and that was Italians' territory. It's a good point, but my only, my only other contention is, that's, and, that's, and that's a good point, but the problem is you still don't want to show, you don't want to show the Russians how much of a screw-up you are. So you still wouldn't send a, a shitty idiot who doesn't know how to fire a firearm at these guys to be the assassin, and then still, and then, and then, let's say now all the Russian guys die, right? Um, now you have the Russian guys look at the Italians and go, "These guys can't even can't even assassinate us." You just pissed them off, you know, and you showed your incompetence. So you're, you know, so now if you show your incompetence that way. Usually, you're then betrayed by someone within your own organization, right? So there's, you know, there's different, there's different, you know, cells if you want to call them cells with, you know, factions within the family. Uh, so all the Russians got to do is go over to family number A, you know, uh, and family number B, and say, 
hey, the main family screwed up. You know, you sure you're, you're on their side? You know what I mean? So it's, you never want to uh, show your weakness that way. If you send in one assassin, you send in ten assassins, you know. Um, and, and that guy Rocco and the Italians actually are very lucky that the McManus brothers fell through that ceiling and were able to be spot-on John Wick uh, awesomeness, you know, and, uh, and do their thing. Otherwise, Rocco would have, would have shown the Italians to be completely inept idiots um, kind of like they are kind of portrayed in the movie. They're not the, they're not the most on-the-ball people in that, in that movie. I don't want no Sicilian showing up to my house here. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I got my own firearms. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, yeah, that's my take on it, at least. I don't know. No, that's no, interesting. That's interesting stuff. And, and, and it seemed like the boys kind of lucked into all of their situations as far as being able to come out alive. Like, he threw the toilet down on the one dude and then jumped on the other dude at the exact moment he was about to shoot his brother, right? So that was, like, totally luck timing. And then they're fighting each other in this air duct and fall through. Totally unplanned. They happen to have the rope. They get their legs tangled in it. They're spinning around, and they, like, have the presence of mind to start shooting all nine of these Russian guys. (laughs) You know, so, so they did have some sort of, hand of God thing going on here. Mm. Absolutely. No, that there was, you know, there was, there was, there was a lot of awesome movie magic, which made this, this film possible. Um, that, you know, like they were talking about in the thing, you're like, Oh, usually you jump behind the couch. You got to fire for 10 minutes, you know, and they're usually doing their little thing. They're right. You know, that these guys thought it was going to be like the movies where, you know, you have the, the Rambo knife when they go to the, they go to the, the, the uh, underground, um, arms dealer and they get the Rambo knife and the, the crazy guns that they, they never, you know, that they're never going to fire, you know, um, their whole entire idea is built off of movies and cinema. And they just happen to have some kind of touched by an angel moment where they're able to pull off these amazing, I mean, if you trained, if you ever, you know, uh, trained in firearms at all, either one of you guys, I know that I have, but I haven't done to the extent of like, you know, the John, you know, the guy who's teaching uh, Keanu Reeves how to shoot John Wick or anything like that, um, or like uh, you know the, the guys in the Magpul movies and stuff like that. Um, you, you know, it's very hard to to kill people headshot after headshot after headshot. Like we said earlier in the in the in the in the show, center mass is where you're supposed to be aiming for because you have a better chance of knocking off, uh, you know, hitting your target. These guys were amazing. Just you know, with their leg tangled up in a rope and just knocking people out left and right, um, it's incredibly inc- I, the amount of training you have to do is, and not only training you have to do once, training you have to do continuously to keep your skill set up, unbelievable. These guys, these two meat packers that were packing meat in a in a in a thing, speaking Russian and 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 French and Italian, all of a sudden can 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 just fall upside down and knock out a whole entire uh, uh, trained killers, by the way, not just like they're just targets sitting around in a knitting circle. These guys are trained killers with their own firearms. They took everybody out. It was amazing. Yeah, totally movie magic. It would never happen in real life. And it, it, uh, they did borrow Diego Maradona's hand of God, right? <laughs> Cause he, he scored that goal <laughs> off his hand. That was a big controversy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, hey, guys, I think we really should start to wind this one down. We've been going almost an hour and a half, and uh, it's been great. Um, I almost don't want to stop talking about this, but I do have to get to bed before too long, and you're on the East Coast, uh, so it's getting real late for you. Yep. So any uh, any last kind of comments on the film, maybe a way to close out the film, maybe talk a little bit about the ending, um, and then tell our audience how to find you, and uh, maybe mention something you're working on, and then we'll shut this one down. Sure. Um, so I think it all comes full circle at the end of the movie, just like all good movies do, where these three, the, the two brothers and their father, El Duce, um, Murphy McManus and Conrad McManus, they all end up in a courtroom. So now they're in a courtroom, all three of these people, right? the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that's what they symbolize, right? The Trinity. And they're all sitting there, and they just took out the mob guy. And the entire courtroom is basically accepted them as the justice arm of their little enclave. They basically said that these guys are going to do the job that nobody else will. And we also see that the court system itself is actually complicit with this as well, right? The state has given up some kind of ability or whatever it's perceived illegitimate power it already has, it gives it up to these three as some kind of hand of justice that it could not uh, possibly live up to. So the court system itself, the bailiffs, um, even um, William Dufoe's character, Paul Smecker, uh, he actually helps them out tremendously uh, throughout the show and throughout the movie and throughout the end of it. So they're all complicit within these three guys who live outside of our given norms, and these guys are going to be our justice um, givers. So the whole movie is about vengeance, but I think it brings up, as we've discussed over the last hour and a half, a lot of interesting concepts, about, and they're not all settled. I mean, I think a lot of these things are gray areas that we could talk about. You could, you could probably take a whole episode about each one of these things and, and go and dive deeper, and uh, I'm, I'm going to start listening big time and... Um, uh, make sure that we all we who we hit them. I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, for me, you can find me at evolutioneconomics.com. I just put it back up there. It was a post uh, blog post. Um, I'm putting a bunch of stuff up there. I'm working right now on one paper for Mises. Um, I'm gonna, hopefully I can get in the Austrian Journal of Economics. That'd be that'd be my hope. It's based on Mises's work, so it uh, it deserves to be in that publication more than it deserves to be in anything else. And hopefully, I'll be able to get to the Mises Graduate Seminar this summer. And um, and uh, hopefully, you guys are uh, you know okay with my dry sense of humor. We can be back on for some other kind of uh, Italian day or something like that, and do the Godfather. That'd be great. We'd love it. Yeah. So. Um... Just to give us uh, a review of the movie, what did you did you like it? Would you would you recommend it? Did you like the acting? The, I, I understand it was like a, a one the first time that the um, screenwriter had actually ever directed a movie, and then he also directed like the the, uh, the sequel that doesn't exist. Is that right? So <laughs> was that is it a well made movie? I think for a first time for a first run movie. By the way, I have a degree in acting, too. So I have a degree in economics and finance and a degree in acting. So um, I'm qualified to speak on these matters. Um, I think that it is. I think it's a good movie. I, I, I don't think that it's just a, uh, uh, you know, just an action flick. I think it, it kind of tells a moral story of some sort. 
those morals might not be the norm that we get in every other day Hollywood. The style itself is a little different than we normally get, but it's his first run. I think that his second run was uh, terrible. <laughs> um, that the Boondock Saints too. I, I had a lot of problems with script. I had a lot of problems with every a lot of things. Um, it missed out on what the actual first movie had. Um, Cinematography-wise, I thought it was a great movie. I thought the plot was good. I, I, like I said, I think there's only a couple holes left and right. But overall, if you compare that to what movies are today, I mean, that movie, this movie is uh, Oscar-winning performance and Oscar-winning uh, screenwriting compared to some of the movies that are in existence today that I can't even believe got any kind of money for funding. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. But, uh, no, I, I definitely I recommend this movie all the time, especially to people that are that – are, um, into some kind of action movie or they're into some kind of period piece or, or, or uh, place piece. Like if you're into Boston, you should watch this movie. You know, there's some, there's some really cool Boston um, moments, you know. Uh, yeah, just to, for note, uh, this movie had a budget of $6 million, which it sounds like it all showed up on screen. It sounded like it was looked better than a $6 million fix, picture. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely – I love when movies are only made for a certain amount of money like that because, you know, when I was when I was in the theater and we were we were doing plays, we would only get a budget of ten thousand dollars to do a play, and um, that might seem like a lot of money, but if you've never produced something for a show for a long time, that money goes by so quick it's not even funny, which it forces you to be creative. Um, and what happens is when a movie like, let's say, the new Ghostbusters comes out that, that just came out recently, uh, has a ridiculous budget for for CGI and stuff, you don't lo- you no longer have to be creative. You can just you can just you know rely on money to get you by on certain things. Which I have heard from reviews on the movie that they you know basically you know said, all right, we're just going to fill this in with some kind of computer ghost and we're just going to do this and this stupid shtick. And they didn't actually think about. Um, being having to be creative, where movies that have very low budget, they have to figure out a way, you know, and uh, that's when that's when a, a director is tested, a producer is tested, actors are tested, is when they actually have to be creative, which is what we're basically paying these people for, if you think about it, right? We're not paying them to do what we all could do at a home. We're paying them to be to use that 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 spark of imagination. So I like it when movies only have a certain budget, like six, back then, $6 million is probably what, um, uh, we're talking about 19, what, what was this, 98, 99? 1999. 99. Uh, so what was, what was that then? What was that now? I'm trying to think. Uh, probably close to 10, right? Yeah, about 10. That's still low for a production of a movie, you know, so. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. To your point about Ghostbusters, yeah, that third act of that movie is just a big CGI fest. And um, if if you want, if anybody's ever interested in listening to a director talk about creative choices to make a movie in a super tight budget, uh, watch El Mariachi or Desperado and listen to Robert Rodriguez's uh, commentary. Yeah. He basically gives you um, uh, a free lesson in how to make a movie on a budget and all the interesting creative design choices and tricks that he used to uh, stretch every dollar that he had. Uh, it's really, really interesting. Desperado, great movie. Oh, man, I haven't seen that one in a while. That one's a great one. Yeah, and he made it for a song, and he made the previous movie, uh, El Mariachi, which is basically a remake of it uh, for, you know, like, I forget what it was, like just a few thousand dollars. Yep, yep, absolutely. Oh, awesome. 
Hey, spe speaking of a few thousand dollars, do you realize that was the box office for uh, the Boondock Saints? Yeah, thirty thousand four seventy one was its take. <laughs> no way, really? Wow. Well, there, there's a background on that. Uh, so all the extensive violence in this film, and of course it was all filmed um, and then ready to be released. But then the Columbine shooting happened, and so no one wanted to um, put the movie out in theaters. So it only showed in like the five theaters across the country for a weekend. Wow, what a bad break. Yeah, but then uh, it made about $50 million in uh, domestic video sales and like blockbuster rentals and all that sort of thing. So. Right, but the funny thing is that uh, the director, uh, who he let this thing go to his head. There's a whole documentary about it um, called Overnight, which basically chronicles him making this movie, and he turns into a total asshole in the process. Uh, he did not, in his negotiations for making the movie, have any of the rights to any of the um, VHS or DVD sales. So he only got a cut of the 30 grand up front. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's how important contracts are. That's right. <laughs> That's right. He ended up suing and, and getting an undisclosed sum uh, because, you know, they did make the $50 million because it became a cult classic, right? I mean, that's that's our bread and butter for this show is is either a present present day movie like uh, we just did the Logan movie with uh, the Afro Libertarian, and that one was great. But um, since Robert and I, we both live in areas that don't really lend themselves to letting us see present run theater run movies, um, cult classics are are what we uh, tend to focus on. Absolutely. Well, the thing is too. You can never, you cannot be blamed for spoilers. You know, people can blame right. you for spoiling Logan for him, but they can't. If you haven't seen The Godfather or you haven't seen Boondock Saints by now, then you know you got problems. Yeah, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, and we threw up spoilers all over the Logan one, so, <laughs> so that's okay. Well, hey, Michael, thank you so much for for joining us. And like I said, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, any of those movies I listed or, you know, uh, the one you just mentioned, uh, what was it? Um, oh, Taboo. Yeah, and there was a, even another one you mentioned. But anyway, you know, you're welcome yep. back anytime. I mean, for well, sure. I appreciate it. So we do appreciate uh, you coming on, and we do appreciate you listeners for joining us. This was, uh, I think, our 12th episode as the Actual Anarchy podcast. Uh, brought to you by the fine folks at actualanarchy.com and readrothbard.com. You can find more of Michael's work on our site and on his site, theevolutionofeconomics.com. Uh, if you do visit our site, do click on the Amazon links or the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom links or any of the other fun links that will give us a tiny little commission that gives us a, a little bit more incentive to keep going at this thing. And uh, that's pretty much all i got to say other than Happy St. Patrick's Day, people. Thank you so much for uh, coming out and celebrating this with us with this uh, Boondock Saints movie. So, Robert, why don't you uh, say some pieces, and then we'll peace out. Yeah, thanks for listening, all my beautiful freedom nerds. Um, like us, subscribe, review us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Actual Anarchy. We're at uh, Trubster at Twitter. Um, iTunes, Google Play, anywhere you can find us. Give us a mention on Facebook. It all helps out. And um, what are we doing next, Daniel? we got a next episode coming up uh, on Sunday. This is our St. Patrick's Day special. Is this getting released on Sunday? 
No, this will drop Friday. Uh, so we're going to have another one Sunday, which we haven't recorded yet. It might be Ghostbusters, uh, but it might be something else. Maybe Sharknado. I don't know. Who knows? Okay, it's a mystery. So look forward to that, everybody. Thanks for listening. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do